I'll see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Room. We're here at Disrupt TV, and we're trying to figure out what the heck Elon Musk is doing with Twitter. Just kidding. <laughs> we're going to do some quick introductions on the back end and, of course, introduce our guests as well. I'm Ray Wong, uh, one of the founders here, co-host, uh, along with my co-host, Bala Afshar, and we've got some amazing guests. Let's start with Vic. Vic, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Ray, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm calling in from New York City, uh, my office, a boring spot in the relative scheme of things. And the topic today is a book I have co just co-authored on the topic of CEO excellence. So I look forward to talking about it. Yes, you've done it with Carolyn and Scott. Uh, it's an amazing book. People should check it out. John, congratulations. It truly is Mellor time. Um, what are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Oh, Ray, it's good to, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, calling in from uh, American Fork, Utah. It's kind of cold and drizzly. We've got one of our uh, 14 seasons happening this week. Uh, we make fun of Utah because there aren't just four seasons. There are about 14. So uh, excited today to talk about how we're, uh, we're helping transform businesses by putting data to work for everybody. So hopefully that'll be a rich conversation about past and future. Cool. And hey, Sanjay, welcome. You're in my time zone, but you'll have to guess where that is. Uh, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Hey, Ray, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm calling in from Gurgaon, Delhi, and uh, we're going to talk about the hybrid workplace and you know talent in the digital world in that context. Very, very cool. Well, hey, I can say this for once, live from Mumbai, uh, which is Disrupt TV, and it's back to you, Al. <laughs> Welcome, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next 60 minutes. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. Ray's a regular television business technology contributor for Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot, him my awesome co-host, Paula Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting and keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses at ZDNet. But we say this all the time, it's never about us, it's about our amazing guests. Who do we have to kick it off today? 
Uh, it's an incredible honor for us, uh, Sanjay Menon, a Managing Director of Publicis Sapient. As a Managing Director of Publicis Sapient India, Sanjay is responsible for driving strategy, capability development, and growth of Publicis Sapient's India presence and maintaining the status as hub of the country's global distribution delivery network. Having been with the company for 21, over 21 years, Sanjay has been instrumental in growing Sapien's India operations since its inception. Sanjay has served in various business and delivery roles, including running key account P&Ls, managing global delivery for some of the business units, as well as growing digital marketing capabilities from India. You can follow Sanjay on Twitter at Sanjmen, S-A-N-J-M-E-N. Welcome, Sanjay, to Disrupt TV. Uh, it's a pleasure, Wala and Ray. I mean, thank you for having me on the show. Looking Our forward pleasure. to it. Thank you. Uh, you must have been early on Twitter with that handle. We totally yeah. get that. So. <laughs> I couldn't get Vala. I don't know how you got Sanjman. That's pretty cool. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, it was just create creative dissection of the first and the last name. Yeah. That was the only combination available. So, hey, well, you know, you, you cover a very excellent and interesting area uh, for Publicis Sapient, and it's really talking about the workplace of the future. Uh, we have a concept, what we call is the great refactor, you know, where we work, when we work, even why we work, uh, has changed. Business models are changing in terms of mission and purpose. Organizations trying to figure out what's happening, right? Monetization has completely been transformed in the digital age, and we're in the midst of a transformation right, across all areas from society, economics, uh, in terms of the world, how we were operating. And we call that the great refactoring. You know, it's been the worst two years ever for decades beginning, uh, but there's a lot of hope at the end of the tunnel. And, and that's what we're excited about. So how do organizations have to think about the work of the place of the future? What is changing? Are people coming to work? What's going on? How's that interaction? You're at the forefront of it. Tell us what's going on. No, I think it's a, it's a great question, Ray. I think this is one of those, I think, situations where, you know, we're learning and we're learning with every passing minute, right? Because I think anybody who feels that they've got this model right, I feel are being super optimistic because everything's changing on us. I think what's typically happened, I think, in the last two years has, uh, even if, think of it, if you were to run an experiment, right? And I keep telling this to even people in our organization. If someone had told me two and a half years back, hey, what if we made everybody work remotely? Could we get this model working? I would have had... Many people tell me in very eloquent terms why it's a stupid idea to try and why it is never going to work. And guess what? The whole world has made, made it work for you know 26 months and counting, right? So the one thing is, I think there's a change that's happened, right? I mean, it happened to us. It happened you know, with us. It doesn't matter what the reasons were. Uh, I think I agree with you. I think it's, it's, you know, it's definitely been a dark period the last two, two and a half years. But the main thing is, I think it has forced us to change. And I think in the change that's happened, I think something's changed forever. Right. I think the new normal that's been set up in this is about the flexibility in how I think about my workplace. So I think till now people equated companies and let's let's start with companies. Right. We always equated workplace equals your physical office, which the companies control. Right. Uh, I think, you know, if you, if you go back 10, 15 years, you know, we talked about brands depending on consumers instead of consumers depending on brands. I think the same thing's happening to the workplace. I think the workplace has got democratized in the last two years. And the people have taken control over the workplace and they're making choices. So I think the future of the workplace is going to be about where work happens, but it's going to happen on the terms and conditions of people who feel what, where can I really create the most impact from, right? Because at the end of the day, I think the question to ask is not about where is someone working from? It's about where, what impact are they creating? And what's proved in the last two years is I can be creating impact from anywhere. So as you think about the future of workplace, I think a few things that at least I, as we think about it as design principles, is one, 
it's going to have to put the person at the center of the model, right? We've had for many years, people work for a model. I think we are now firmly getting into the era where the model will work for the people, right? And at Publicis Sapien, that's, that's to us at the core of our working model is really, how do you put the person and their preference at the center of it? People may have a preference of saying, I want to work from, you know, remotely all the time. I want to come into the office some point in time. I want to come into the office all the time. That's fine. How do you create a, a model that allows for that preference? That's number one. The second design principle is how is it truly inclusive? Because the reason it needs to be inclusive is I can't be disenfranchised because I made a choice. Hey, I made a choice of working remotely. I'm in a team of 10 and eight of eight people are in the office. I'm one of two who's on the phone or on the on Zoom or wherever. And therefore, I feel I'm not part of the conversation. I feel I'm not in the context, right? So the model will also then have to think about how does it truly become inclusive, which to me also gets into some of the deeper things of as a company, what's your culture, right? Is your culture truly inclusive, right? So there are a lot of foundational levers as people think about the workplace. I mean, for us, like, for example, I think we were in a way always flexible even, even before 2020. We, we gave people flexibility of their choice of where they wanted to work from, how they... How, you know, how they picked a configuration that rendered themselves most, in, most impactful. But I think that'll have to be some of the centerpiece. Now, the most important part, I think, as people think about the workplace for me is, how do you create a sense of community? How do you create a sense of belongingness? Because at the end of the day, the reason that we all work wherever we work is because we are buying into a larger passion, a larger vision, right? And, and we are plugging into an energy source. That's the organization. Now, how does that organization move from just a physical manifestation to really being ubiquitous, right? And so to me, as organizations think about the future, as, as we're thinking about the workplace of the future, we're really saying it's people at the center, an inclusive culture that allows everybody to be in on the conversation. So everybody feels connected irrespective of where they are. And yet they create a sense of you know belongingness and uh, a sense of oneness with the organization. I think that to me is I think going to be at least the frame that uh, organizations are going to have to think about. It is not going to be about and, and I, in fact, I'll, I'll do, I find it really fascinating when people talk about this as a pendulum, right? Hey, the pendulum is swung and it's going to swing back. And to me, that makes sense when you have aberrations. You know, an aberration doesn't last for two and a half years, right? Mm. When something lasts for two and a half years, it's the new normal. It's not an aberration. The pendulum is not swinging back anywhere. We're evolving from here. So, so when people are saying, hey, we're just going to wait it out and people start coming back to the office and we'll all get back to the way it was, you know, before March of 2020, at least in the, in the context of India or the globe, I think, I just don't think that's going to happen, honestly. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I call myself an optimist, but not such a diehard one that I think there's any pendulum swinging back. I think we're moving forward from where we are. I agree. I agree. And I love the way you reference a physical space as an energy source, because you're right, uh, you know, especially if you have the privilege of managing talent, those random collisions, uh, an opportunity for a mentor or a sponsor to see you in action, to see positive energy coming from someone in the office who's inspiring and educating the teammates, first to show, last to leave. There's certain things that we've lost, like even meetings like this, as soon as the Zoom call is finished, you know, you're done. So those incredible collisions that happened before the meeting, after the meeting, we haven't had for two, two plus years. I wrote an article about India innovation and startups, 44 unicorns in 2021. And in the first three months of 2022, about 18 new unicorns. Yeah. I'm wondering how many of these young digital native companies are purely headquarters in the cloud? I mean, I, I, don't, I didn't look deeply enough to know yeah. how many of these 60 some odd unicorns that have been born in the last two years 
actually have physical offices? Do you have a sense of these digital native companies? If you're a young entrepreneur, CEO, do you even think about physical space at this point? Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I don't. You're so, <laughs> you're so right, right? Because I think, and I think it's a mix, uh, Wala, because, you know, you know I, I, as you can imagine, I have these conversations so many, you know, so many of them with so many different people. I, I've come around to now asking uh, three different kinds of questions, right, to people. <laughs> Uh, and that's my own education. Six months back, I asked a different kind of question. Now I asked three different kinds of questions. First question, uh, do you want to come back to the office? So how do you relate to the, you know, do you want, do you relate to the physical office? And the answer is yes, right? Second, do you plan to work in the office regularly? The answer is no. Uh, do you want to come back to the office to retire work? And the answer is only maybe. Because what people have found is that there is, uh, in the two years, everybody's got enough confidence and I can actually create the impact I need from wherever I am, right? I think that's absolutely firmly ingrained in most people. I, I don't see that as a thing. But to your point, people do seek that connection, that camaraderie, right? Which comes from being co-located or being able to get connected. So when I look at people as to how they think about the physical workspace in terms of the office versus where they work from, there is, a, there is a, a dichotomy, right? So people see the connection at some cadence, but a cadence of their choosing. So when people keep saying, I need a one day a week, I need a two day a week, I need a three day a week, I'm like, you know, you're counting down pretty much in vacuum because no one's listening to you, right? Because people are saying, I desire to come into the work one day a week, two days a week or three days a week. And that's a pure coincidence, but it's not because someone's kind of, you know, making you march to a drum roll, right? I think that's not going to happen. So to your point on the startups and this thing, what I've seen with people that I've speak with is that they want to create a sense of connection because there is a lot about, you know, a small group of people getting together yeah. to try and, you know, take on a larger cause, right? There is that, there is a level of, there's a rallying cry, there's a level of energy and that's required. But I don't think that is as much the case for where they work from. So they seek, you know, that virtual energy source, and maybe they do connect physically at times as well, but it's not a yeah. prerequisite. And and for us, an enterprise of our size as well, I think, you know, our mission and what we're already operationalizing is how do you create that at scale? How do you literally create uh, people who feel I'm connected, I'm energized, I have a sense of who the organization is, but that doesn't mean I've got to be in 100,000 square feet of space or a million square feet of space five days a week to feel that. I agree. I agree. It's funny, the intimacy is we are in each other's homes for two years. I'm in my yeah. dining room while well, Ray's traveling around the globe. Sure. So, <laughs> But for most of us, yeah, it's amazing that sense of belonging and the, per the, the personalized nature of how we're not connecting with not just our colleagues, but our customers as well. Ray, sorry, go ahead. No, no, this makes a lot of sense. And, and what I was going to say is like, you know, I mean, we were also in the same situation when we think about what's changed around attracting talent, right? We've got 11 million jobs unfulfilled, for example, in the US. I don't know what it's like in India, but what, what I'm hearing, I mean, people yeah. are, are leaving, right? It's almost 72, 80% uh, of the people that were hired in the middle of the pandemic have left, right? The turnover is massive in areas that are attracting high-tech jobs in high-tech areas. And, and almost every organization is facing that same challenge is what do we have to do uh, to bring in the right talent? Um, what are you doing there? How are you addressing that piece? Because that's a big piece of this future of work equation that's going to have to be addressed. No, totally. I think, you know, if, if I look at our space, I think people who have the people will win the game, right? I mean, it's, it's a very simple way of uh, kind of the, you know, the, the, the tagline to it, right? Uh, I think one of the upsides of the current, uh, I think what's, what's, what's really playing out across the world and definitely more so in India as well, is just 
the choice, the wealth of choice, because now your what you were relevant for, that context is not predicated on where are you physically located. Yeah. So the minute you take away that kind of tight coupling, which I think has been part of our DNA for so many decades, you suddenly realize, oh my God, you know, I could be relevant for so many different contexts because now I could be, you know, at, uh, Ray, I could be in Mumbai and, you know, plugging into a context, you know, on the West Coast or on the East Coast or, in, you know, on, or, or in Romania for all I care, right? So I think there is, uh, so that's gone away. So because of which I think for us, uh, I, we see that as an upside because our model is about taking the work to the people, not taking people to the work, right? So yeah. the other, sorry, go, go on. Oh, oh, no, 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 keep going, keep going. So the other thing I think that's also changing because of that is I think we can actually create far more diverse workforces now. So we are actually quite excited about that because now you can mainstream so many more people into the ability to tap into their potential and the change they can bring in the world uh, as compared to earlier, because you can literally connect a human ecosystem now many different ways than you know when it was predicated on physical uh, co-location. So, so for us, we actually see it as a tremendous upside, and which is why you know we find talent interested in us from a standpoint of saying it's a highly flexible model, it's a highly flexible culture, it's a culture that truly really puts the people at the center of it. But more importantly, you know, it creates our ability to join, as I said, you know, create a human and a capability ecosystem, uh, you know, unlike one before. Uh, I think it also has a downside, which is people are super distracted, right? Because it's you know you're suddenly drinking off a fire hose, right? I mean, you know, uh, earlier if you wanted to get hired. Uh, you know, you had to show up somewhere, get interviewed. It was hard work. And today you could be sitting on the same chair in your study and, you know, between three work meetings, get interviewed four times, right? So, you know, there is that. that reality. I know, that I know people that have three jobs and their employers don't know that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, people talk Excluding about you know, yourself. People leaving yeah. the workforce. <laughs> people talk about people leaving the workforce, but this gig economy thing is real. The side hustle on the gig economy is, is pretty crazy. Like I know people that are full stack web developers on three gigs. So. That's amazing. That's amazing. No, I, so, I, 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 I agree on that. I think, you know, that's, I think that's a, you know, I think that's got accelerated, right? I think that might have otherwise been a journey that would have happened in the next maybe, you know, three, five years. I think that's got absolutely short circuited and accelerated. And it's again, up to, I think it's up to companies as to how do we harness that workforce, but keep it all above the board. So, you know, how do you, how do you make it possible for people to, uh, to your point, Ray, work, work three jobs. Uh, but you know, do it do it above the board so people know where they're spending their time. But how do you tap into the thin slices of time? I think is going to be a reality of you know how do you how do you really tap into human potential? You know, at, you know, in the world at large. It's yeah, it's amazing in this decentralized digital first model. How you know, I'm not sure what the impact has in terms of long term careers like yourself. 21 years building a digital pioneer, digital trailblazer company. And we are talking to a technologist. So my last question for you is, when we talk about uh, the growth of augmented and virtual reality, interactive 3D, all of this leading to the metaverse and Web3 technologies and capabilities built on a ledger where you can actually track where the work is done and source of goodness and energy. What are your thoughts on the metaverse impacting um, perhaps a digital twin of the office space? And what will the work uh, uh, for, especially in a gig consultancy, project to project based work in, 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 a, in a company like uh, yours, where you're you know, a leader in technologies like metaverse, capabilities like metaverse? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I think we're just scratching the surface there, right? I, I feel yeah. there is just endless possibilities and it's going to be only be limited by our own imagination, right? Because, I mean, think of it, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that today we operate in a world that's fairly binary. And when I say binary, either we're physically co-located or we're in a two-dimensional structure like right now. And I think the metaverse just creates a join in between that is almost like now a rich continuum. So instead of being on either side of a bookend, <laughs> you suddenly open up a universe in between. And that universe could be that I could be, you know, like the three of us could be, you know, in the metaverse, actually sitting and pretty much, you know, feel like we're sipping coffee around a, a mm -hmm. table and having this conversation. Uh, so which means if I go back to, you know, from a, from a team standpoint, from a people standpoint, how do you create a deeper sense of connection? It's just so much more immersive in how you do that. You know, I think about organizations, and I, I love this term I heard somewhere back, which is called the smell of a place, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you identify the organization, right? You get the smell of the place. Yeah. Now, the smell of the place in the metaverse actually is a fairly physical possibility at some level, right? Which means, you know, so you, you can physically uh, draw context from something that you're not even there at. So to me, it just blows my mind in terms of the possibilities. And, and I feel that this is going to definitely... Uh, bring a lot of the changes in terms of how people organize, how people relate, how people connect, and just take it to a very, very ethereal level. Uh, and I think that to me is just absolutely fascinating. I think that's going to be like the you know the next the next kind of spike in how people and teams and the human system you know ecosystems get kind of you know connected globally. So I'm I'm, I'm just super excited. I think we're scratching the surface because the possibilities are. And, and, I, I, and I think the tipping this point, is, as you said, will come when there's a killer app. You know, that app that actually increases the sense of belonging and mattering. And like you said, harmonizes this physical presence, digital presence in a way that feels organic and real. Like you said, the touch, the feel, the smell. But that killer app doesn't exist. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I haven't experienced it yet. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not ready for smell in the metaverse yet. But, uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's the one thing I want. I keep the smells out. That's uh, funny. Other than yeah. the center. But hey, we are here with Sanjay Menon, Managing Director, Poodle Sapient India. And more importantly, he's up here late with me here in India. So you can follow him on Twitter at S-A-N-J-M-E-N. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, yep. thanks for staying up late with us. Yep. Thank Pleasure, you. Ray. Pleasure, You're well terrific. Thank you, you so much. You're yes. terrific. Bye-bye. Thank you. Imagine a 21-year career with a company. I, again, I wonder how much of that we'll see in, in, the, in, in, the, in the future. Our next guest, what a, what a privilege to get a CEO perspective in terms of future of work and the importance of technology to, as, a, as a growth driver. John Mellor, CEO of Domo and member of the board. John is a proven SaaS leader with deep experience scaling companies. John brings more than 25 years of technology industry expertise to Domo, where since 2019, he's been responsible for shaping his corporate strategy, positioning, and marketing. Prior to Domo, John was vice president of strategy and business operations for the small company called Adobe. <laughs> Adobe's <laughs> digital marketing business unit. Uh, and he was there and grew the business from 300 million to nearly 3 billion in annual revenue. You can follow John on Twitter. This could be the coolest Twitter handle I've seen in a long time. Meller time. M-E-L-L-O-R-T-I-M-E. -L -L -E. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thank you so much. It's good to, good to see you all. Thanks for staying up late, Ray. This is this is great. Really appreciate yeah, the opportunity. Ray starts at midnight. This is I, this is normal for Ray. I don't think Ray sleeps. I, I think Ray is actually robotic potentially. He's already been in the metaverse, and this is an avatar. You're right. The secret is you have to have the avatar sync. That real-time syncing is the ability to get to data apps. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. <laughs>
but John, hey, congratulations. You just became Thermo CEO like a month ago in March. And congratulations. Tell us about this, right? I mean, you've been at um, I mean, you've been at Doma for quite some time. Amazing founder story, amazing organization. So tell us about that and why the opportunity was interesting to you. Yeah, yeah, great. And you're, you're right. It's a great, great founder story, great business, a lot of value creation over the last decade. It's it's really an honor and a big opportunity for me to be able to uh take the reins as CEO at, at Domo. It's, the thing that's always been interesting to me, and I've been a data geek my whole my whole career, and this kind of started when I was at Omniture with web analytics and then into Adobe and, and now into Domo. I'm just fascinated by how data can really change how systems operate, how people operate, uh, and it's it's just an accelerant for how we can do business and live our lives. So that that's kind of my zen. I, I love data and its impact on the on the business. So Domo was a really great fit for me and that uh, that intention. And to be CEO, it's great. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a real privilege. That's terrific. Um, you're talking to two fellow data geeks. I say that affectionately, <laughs> data nerds. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, in your keynotes at your conferences about next phase of data analytics and BI, and you called um, some of this uh, data apps. Um, what are data apps? Can you share your, your vision in terms of this future of visualization of data to improve not just decision velocity, but ability to grow your business? Yeah, so, you know, what, what we've seen, uh, and this is, this is really trends over the last 10 years, and I think the, the pandemic has accelerated this, but there's so many investments in data in organizations. And a lot of that investment is in data lakes, lake houses, data warehouses. I don't even know what the, y'all can, can inform me the latest uh, terms of these things today. Lake house with a heater. I don't lake, know. <laughs> and plumbing. I like plumbing. I'm plumbing. I'm plumbing. Um, you know, what's really, I think, and we don't think is the barrier to actually having data make a difference in an organization is that last mile. And for all the energy that's been put into the data lakes and bringing data together, there really is not a great way to go from there to putting it in the hands of the entire organization. I mean, yes, if you're in marketing, Adobe's got you covered. We got all kinds of data and we'll put it in the right place for you to use it. Your Salesforce, if you're in sales, great. I got all your data for you and we can make your life easier. What if you're not in marketing or sales? What if you live in the white space between clouds? and you need data to do your job. Well, you got you to have somebody who's paying attention to you and helping you bridge that last mile, getting the data you need and put it, making it usable, putting it in context and not for the data analysts alone. Hmm. This is about mere mortals. This is about everybody doing their job who doesn't think about being a data analyst or SQL or all these other things. They just need to get their job done and they need to be informed and have data and analytics and workflow wrapped into a great experience. Yeah, you're right. MBAs are hard. Next best action. And when we take that model, when we go from data to decision, it's, it's not an easy path, right? And as we think about this, right? I mean, I think you and I talked about this. We, we've, we've talked about this, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, there was that meeting, right, that you would have you know, on, on a February to look at January data, whether you'd pat yourself on the back or say, oh, we got a course correct. And you know, right. that doesn't happen anymore, right? Companies want the data right away. I mean, they start the big day with data, they continue the day with data, the end day with data. I mean, they can get data at any time. 
uh, and it's just available. And, and this is part of that larger thing that we call the great refactoring. And the question is really like, what do we do in this post-pandemic world? What, what changed? What was most surprising about what customers were doing uh, with that information and insight? Yeah, well, huge, huge time of change. And, you know, the pandemic accelerated a lot of what people were working on, I think, around data. A lot of these projects got dramatically accelerated because workforces became more distributed. You uh, you were looking for any competitive edge you could get to drive your business and to adapt to the how consumers were changing their buying patterns, their their consumption patterns. And, uh, you know, it just became a really uh, critical time for people to understand what is what is truth and you know when you when you talk about the great refactoring absolutely we've we've changed how we work no no question but uh let me let me give you a couple of data points as a uh, maybe <laughs> interesting to, to folks so about three weeks ago we had our our revenue kickoff so we brought hundreds of people together into one conference room or you know a, a hotel conference center and we talked about the year ahead and we talked strategy and we did we did work sessions and we did role plays. And the energy in that room was amazing. It was a yeah. in-person event. And to to you know, I took I took videos of, of just all the people working, kind of talking, and you're feeling body language and you're really kind of connecting with people you hadn't in a lot of cases Love it. met in a couple of years. And it felt so good. Yet, if you ask people, okay, you ready to go back to the office full time? Like, oh, oh, no, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> what I meant is I love to see you and I love to hang out you out with you while we were while we were bursting, while we were working on something together that required a more intimate interaction um, than a lot of the execution that we've done over the last couple of years, where just being virtual is is great. It's super efficient, and I think companies are kind of balancing this situation of execution efficiency and innovation. Hmm. And how can we blend those two things in a way that doesn't violate the need for everybody to be flexible now? Cause that's a, hmm. that's a, uh, that's a mode we've, we've become accustomed to, but we, we've got to somehow blend the, the physical world, that intimacy and bursting with the flexibility of being able to work where you want, when you want. So one thing that we, we feel is really important is as, as workforces are distributed and will continue to be so, you've got to look for what are those common pillars that we organize around? What is, what is common truth that we as employees can use to collaborate, to uh, execute strategy, et cetera? And you know, some of these truths are around culture, it's how you do things. But we believe one of those truths is data. You know, yeah. data should not uh, be scarce. Data should be truth and data should be accessed by anybody in an organization. Because we believe that's a, that's a common ground. Now let's all go be distributed, execute. We still have the common framework of the, of the data that we're using and we're refreshing and we're augmenting mm -hmm. and all making decisions and planning off of um, we believe that's a, a key ingredient for how people are going to continue to maintain cohesion, maintain alignment with strategy, yet accommodate the flexibility that the workforce needs going going forward. That's great. That's great insights. Uh, we can tell you're a great storyteller. I can tell just in the few minutes of you talking about 
you know, how the pandemic accelerated a data-driven culture and the importance of data. It was Brainerd Brown who said, uh, great stories are data with a soul. Um, and I have to take this opportunity to thank you and Domo for helping me get thousands and thousands of Twitter followers because I often share your one minute on the internet infographic. Uh, and that to me is a perfect That's visualization. Awesome um, you know, I, Ray, I've probably gained 10,000 followers with that infographic. No, no kidding. Because you, you publish it year after year after year. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, the, the human mind processes an image 60 times faster than text. So when I'm in front of business leaders, I want to explain to them that data never sleeps and mobility of data is critically important and data has a shelf life. It can expire if it goes unused. I often point to the infographic just so they get a sense of the mass and yeah. the volume and the dimensionality of all the different channels that this data is flowing through. So my question to you is, do you internally use visualization techniques and tools to help cultivate a data-driven culture? And is that how you consult your clients so they have a deeper, wider understanding of this incredible ocean of data that's in front of us and it's so little used, to be honest with you. Yeah. Even the most advanced companies, in my opinion, are using you know single digit percentage of what's available to them. Right, right. Oh, that, that's, that's so true. I mean, for all the investments that have been put into data, I mean, it, at best you, you hear some stats that maybe 30% of the employees have access to data. I, I think that's very, very generous. I think it's probably closer to what you said in, this, in the single digit percentages of people who actually can use data and you know, have access to this massive amount of data that is that is coming at us every day. But you know, I think you, you've got, this kind of goes back to what we, we were talking about. You've got so much data, but if you go through the organiz, organization and say, how are you using data in your day-to-day -day job? Yeah. That's where the breakdown happens. And for all of the executive board discussion about we need to digitally transform and we need a chief digital officer and a, a data agenda, it's just hooey until you get it into the hands of an everyday worker who is making a decision and doing their job. It yeah. can't live in the corner office with IT or even with sales or marketing. You, you got to free it. And I think there's a really interesting um, mindset shift that the, the industry has to go through because it's not just about presenting the data. I mean, we may be okay with a green screen or, I mean, Ray's probably still using VI editor to write his email. <laughs> hey, <laughs> but, mine was good, okay. <laughs> but you're, you know, the, the millennial, the, the new generation, the people on the floors of retail shops, uh, those folks need data in context, in their workflow. And you know no, what? No. They don't even recognize it as data. They don't even, they, they don't say, oh, I finally got data to do my job. They say, finally, the organization has put an app in my hands yeah. that helps me do my job better. Yes, it's data and it's in context and it's tied with workflow. So I can actually make decisions and write back to databases, not just passively consume data. Right. Embedded analytics. It's got to happen. I mean, we, we have to have data in context. We've got to have it actionable. And I, I think bridging that gap is where the next step of competitive advantage is for organizations. Will machine learning turbocharge this ability to have embedded analytics 
in the smart workflow so that you can not only serve your internal stakeholders, the employees, but also your external stakeholders, your business partners, your customers, the communities that you serve. How do you scale this insights that can lead to action beyond just the walls of your company? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's such a powerful, powerful point because if data is valuable, it's, it's just as valuable outside your walls as it is inside your walls and your partner ecosystem, your vendors, all of these, these groups would benefit from having real-time data available to them. I mean, maybe you're a supplier into a grocery store right. or a supplier into another retail, retail situation. Maybe you're a game developer, you know, building on a game platform and you need real-time data about how your game's performing. I mean, these are very real use cases um, that, that will enable the business. Now you talk about this and, and you know, the hackles go up or the antennas go up and people say, well, what about governance? Oh no, I, I can't let my data out. Who will, who will see it? What will they do with it? And those are the challenges that you, you knock down those technical challenges. And again, you, you just brought data out to a whole nother audience, which is back to this last mile thing. You've got to close the last mile if you're going to get any benefit out of digital transformation. You can spend tens of millions of dollars bringing your data together. I don't care. If you haven't bridged the last mile, it won't change your business. Totally. You know, now, now part of bridging that last mile is really what you call about building a data-driven culture. Let's get there, right? Because a lot of times the tech is there, the process is there, but the impetus to change and that culture isn't built in. Um, where, where do you see some of the things? I mean, you've been following this space for such a long time. Yeah. Uh, what are some of those challenges that enterprises have? And, and does it have to be driven by the CEO? Like, it, it can't just be one line of business that's carrying yeah. the data culture torch. In my experience, if it's not, you know, pervasive throughout the entire enterprise, where there's transparency, accountability, and, 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 a, and a culture where you're reporting not just effort, but outcomes, uh, um, it, it, it just, you can't reach your full potential, yeah. uh, in my opinion, unless, you know, the very top, senior leader is is promoting you know this type of mindset yeah yeah you know i i agree with you and that that promotion has to be on be beyond just hiring a cdo i think in some cdo is just not enough it's got to be much more pervasive than that let me let me tell you something we're doing that may be an interesting example sure so we we built a, a product using domo called goals and it, it is essentially an app that lets every person in the organization input their goals into the system that are tied to data. So every goal that goes, let's say you're in sales, I've got to hit this sales number. I, I, don't, I don't have to go look someplace else to enter that data into my goal achievement dashboard. It's right there. It's linked. And so you're, you're, you're exposing an opportunity to connect behavior with data. Hmm. And that is something that, yes, can be done by the CEO. It's the CEO's responsibility to set the top line goals, trickle those down. At least yes. that's, how, that's how we've done it. Sure. And then let the organization say, I'm going to be, I'm given the flexibility to do what I need to do where I need to do it, but I'm going to line up to these common corporate goals. And, um, you know, a big goal for any company is how do you hit the number? How do you, how do you hit your revenue number? Well, it's amazing that when you say that goal, 
and you say it in this context, it's not just sales that starts to think of hitting the number as a, as a goal. It's customer support, it's product, it's marketing. All of these, all of these things start to line up and you, you, you get alignment around data toward a common objective, which starts to promote that data is in the fabric of how we think and how we, how we action. John, you're going to make it in Vikram's next book. That was awesome. That was, <laughs> I'm looking that for was tips. great insight. I'm looking for tips. <laughs> All right, stick around. We're going to talk to him in, in, a, in a little bit. We are here with John Meller, CEO of Domo and member of the board. You can follow him on Twitter at MellerTime. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being a great friend as well. So. Thank you, guys. It's great. Thank you very much. That was uh, incredible nuggets of wisdom. And, uh, you know, no pressure, uh, Vikram, but he's a good candidate <laughs> for, for a follow-up book. What an honor for us to have a legend um, at our as our last guest. This is the, where the cleanup hitter comes in and hits a grand slam with tremendous wisdom. Vikram <laughs> Malotra, author uh, and, uh, and, uh, of CEO Excellence and senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Vikram is a senior partner in McKinsey New York office and is a longest tenured member of the firm. Vikram served on its board of directors for 13 years, its operating committee for six, and its senior partner committee for five. Throughout his career, Vikram has spent extensive time consulting CEOs and, and, and boards. Vikram is the co-author of the book titled CEO Excellence. You'll see in the corner of my, my, my tile. The six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Vikram currently serves as the chairman of the board at the Wharton Graduate School and is the trustee of the New York City Partnership, trustee emeritus of Asia Society and former trustee of the conference board. You can follow his company's work at McKinsey. Welcome Vikram to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Vala. I appreciate your very full and very kind introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Our pleasure. I had to cut it short. We only have 20 minutes, Vikram. I had to reduce it to just a high level. You've done a lot. You've done a lot. Well, I've been at this for 36 years at McKinsey. So, you that's know, you, that's a long time to be doing anything. That's amazing. Well, look, wow. I mean, 25 years being the CEO whisperer, uh, being there to see all different types of CEOs really gives you a unique perspective. And, and, and I think this is kind of a, a very important point. I mean, we are in a leadership crisis um, around the world, mm -hmm. whether it's in governments, uh, institutions, and more importantly, in the corporate organizations. So um, tell us why CEO excellence is so important right now and what is driving the demand uh, for this conversation. Yeah. Look, Ray, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, this is a hard, difficult role, but it matters. It matters. And excellence in the role, if you're a top quintile or truly excellent CEO, it really makes a difference. So let me just give you three lenses. And I, I might actually argue that there are multiple lenses uh, beyond that. But three lenses I'll give you. Uh, you know, one, um, uh, increasingly uh, in today's world, uh, the CEO has a real role externally beyond their organization in terms of being a voice. Uh, we've seen it with social unrest. We've seen it with war in Ukraine. We've seen it through the pandemic. Uh, CEOs have emerged as a very trusted voice out there, and particularly those that have credibility given what they've done with their institutions and what they've done with their performance. So that's one lens. The second lens is the societal impacts they have, just the jobs that they create, the impact that they can have in society, the radiation beyond their company uh, is big. And then finally, 
you know, from a pure shareholder return point of view, top quintile CEOs are are completely amazing. I mean, just to give you one fact, um, in industry sector after industry sector after industry sector, top quintile CEOs outperform the other four quintiles by a factor of three year after year after wow. year after year, right? Wow. And so if you're Jamie Dimon and you've been doing it for 14 years in a row, you really differentiate yourself from a performance point of view from others. So excellence matters both from a shareholder point of view, but also from a societal point of view. That's a that's a great stat. And I'm fortunate to work for a company with a great CEO, uh, co-CEOs. <laughs> and uh, I've known this company for 18 years. And, and it's, it's so true that uh, what Ray said at the beginning, um, I think we have experienced a trust deficit, especially in the last two years. Obviously, a, a health crisis of a lifetime, in our right. lifetime, led to an economic crisis, political misinformation crisis. Uh, you know, and, and so there have been macro, micro inequality and injustice. Uh, so, so you have said, and, and it's in your book, um, that the top CEOs treat the soft stuff. And by the way, we've had Tom Peters on our show a number of times, and he always reminds us that soft skills are the hardest skills to develop and maintain. But you have said this, top CEOs treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff. Can you share with us what that means and how these exceptional CEOs really focus on the soft stuff? Yeah, absolutely, um, uh, Vala. Uh, you, if you do read the book, you'll find that uh, we talk about the six responsibilities of the CEO, but importantly, it's eventually the six mindsets around those six responsibilities. And when we talk about treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff, it's all around the topic of aligning the organization, which often comes down to culture, the kind of organization structure and agility you build and talent. And these things are the soft things that, you know, most of us think about as squishy, you know, you kind of manage it through intuition, through gut, all of that. What we discovered was that the excellent CEOs actually treat these soft elements, culture, talent, etc., very much the way they think about budgets and resource allocation and the things you can put hard metrics around. So they'll take an element of culture that they want to move. They will define it. They will put uh, real metrics around it. They will measure it. They will personally role model it. They will demand of their organization that the organization role models it. They will measure the outcome and hold people accountable for the outcome, pay people on the out, uh, outcome, uh, outcome. So that's what we mean by treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff. They actually kind of you know, make it real for the organization as opposed to just talking about it in it in concept. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, and we're definitely seeing that, right? I mean, this is a very important piece. And, you know, let's let's take it to another area for mission and purpose of change. We're looking at ESG. It's Earth Day, right? Happy Earth Day. And uh, what we're talking about here is, you know, what about this role to figure out the balance between shareholders and stakeholders and really the demands of ESG? I mean, if you move too fast, you could bankrupt the company, right? And, and if you move too slow, you could actually impact the earth, right? And, and, and other areas. And we, and we see this challenge being thrown at CEOs. What should people be doing about this? What should leaders be doing uh, in terms of addressing those types of issues? Yeah, look, I think uh, gone are the days, and uh, the two of you may be too young to remember Gordon Gecko in Wall Street when he said, <laughs> greed is good. 
Uh, gone are those days. Uh, we have gone from shareholder uh, management to stakeholder management. And stakeholders include internal stakeholders. The voice of the employee is loud in, in today's social media world. The CEO and top leadership hear the employee voice all the time. The customer voice is louder than it's ever been. And by the way, that's before we get to trade unions and regulators and investors and analysts. And those are the those are the things you can anticipate. And then, of course, there are all those stakeholders that you don't know are going to just come hit you, depending on what's happening in the world in the moment. So, you know, the world shifted. And I think CEOs and boards understand their responsibility for broader stakeholder management. Now, of course, you've got to balance a lot of these dimensions. And of course, you've got to, you've got to do it in, in smart and capable ways. But I will tell you that the excellent CEOs are actually much bolder on those dimensions. You, you know, one of our, one of our responsibilities is set the direction of the company. And the mindset there is be bold, be bold. Mm -hmm. And the boldness that we see from CEOs in you know, the tech world, I can give you examples of what Satya Nadella did when he took over as CEO of, uh, of Microsoft. But you actually go to a bunch of examples of CEOs of uh, uh, energy companies. And the best have moved boldly in the arena of ESG, for example, uh, and have done that really, really well. And so, again, yes, you've got to be balanced, right? You can't just go right into it and say, we're going to shift the company whole scale, right? But if you can set the vision, you can set the direction right, you can do it in measured but bold ways, you can, you can absolutely shift it. So I'll give you one example of um, a company that's now called Orsted. It used to be the Danish oil and natural gas company, right? It started out as a $4 billion uh, utility uh, in, in Denmark. Uh, the CEO comes in, uh, one, wonderful wonderful gentleman who decides that he's, going to, he's got a capability there around wind that he needs to leverage. Uh, he goes off and essentially recreates a vision around that and completely shifts the company. Today, Orsted is the largest uh, uh, wind provider in the world or, or wind wow. provider in the world, I believe its market cap is higher than BP, right? Yes. That was a bold vision, a bold direction that he said that really, frankly, you know, you know, you might have thought he was crazy in the moment. And this is going back about eight or 10 years now. Uh, but look at the way it's paid off. And so I think you'll see many such examples now as we look forward to the next 10 years as these CEOs are bold on this whole topic of ESG. It's it's absolutely not only they're bold as you mentioned mentioned in this age of social media this hyper connected knowledge sharing economy you can see uh, and and feel their energy and passion around their bold initiatives for example I see Jim Farley CEO of Ford and an average Joe says hey I love my new Ford F one fifty Lightning electric truck. And Jim will say, oh, I'm happy to see you enjoy the truck. Let us know how we can improve. And, I, you know, you've got a CEO of one of the largest car manufacturers in the world in real time engaging with one buyer. Um, and, and so you can see his passion towards shifting to, you know, building new next generation vehicles. So my question to you is, as you spent time with all these incredible CEOs writing the book, and of course, you've been doing it for decades. Anything surprise you? Was there a, you know, an aha moment or you know, maybe breaking news you can share on our show in terms of folks that surprise you just the way they, their habits, their discipline, and the way they go about running successful companies? Yeah, I, I would say that the, uh, uh, 
Uh, well, I think the thing that, that stood out for me, by the way, I should just tell the audience, the way that we picked the CEOs to interview, mm -hmm. we basically said you had to be in tenure for six years and you had to have been largely, not exclusively, top quintile uh, performer in terms of shareholder return. Wow. And it turns out that over the last 25 years, from 4,000 CEOs we looked at, there were only 200 of them. We reached out to 75, and 67 of them agreed to be interviewed for this book. So uh, that, 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 was, uh, that was a great group. And the pandemic undoubtedly helped, actually, because we were able to do a lot of this remotely, and yeah. it all worked out. But the the... The piece that I think stood out for me was the way that these CEOs operated in terms of how they spent their time and their personal operating effectiveness. And by that, I mean, when it, many of the CEOs I've noted over time will actually only spend about 10% of their time on the direction of the company and the operational elements of bringing the strategy alive, resource allocation and the like. These CEOs tended to spend 40% of their time there. It's an average, but on balance, a number of them opened up their calendars to us. They spent 40% of their time there. Then they spent a good 30% of their time on the soft stuff, culture and talent in particular, right? Culture and talent. And then because, and we can come back and talk about this, the demands externally have grown on them. They're spending 30% of the time in the external stakeholder world, right? And, and that's a very purposeful mix that many of them gravitate towards because it's the things that only they as a CEO can do. And the idea here is you really empower others to then go off and do great things, right? And if you can get that mix right, you can get the right talent in. We can go on for hours about the way that they think about talent and bringing in great talent and nurturing great talent in their companies. That's the equilibrium that they work on. And yet I see too many CEOs who are less excellent who are fighting fires all day long, right? They're going from one fire to another as opposed to really getting the, the foundation right so that the company can excel and these CEOs can focus on what they only can do rather than things that they are trying to help on that others could possibly take care of. Of the 67 CEOs you interviewed, how many of them get eight hours of sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you'd be you'd be surprised, Vala, that, okay. uh, that, uh, that actually, I think the first year, no one can prepare you for your time as CEO. So yeah, most of sure. them will talk about their first year as being a complete disaster. So Ajay Banga, the legendary CEO of MasterCard, talks about the fact that that first year he was going to Singapore and he was, while, while everyone in Singapore was sleeping, he was working in the, in, in the U.S. and vice versa. And a little bit like Ray right now, you know, he was kind of in, that, <laughs> in those different time zones. He's a CEO, Ray is a CEO, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so, but, but they all learn that they can't go on that way. If they're going to, you know, life's a series of sprints for them. It's not a marathon. It's not one sprint. You've got to have recovery. You've got to have renewal. You've got to make time for yourself. You've got to do things that give you energy if you're going to operate for this long. And so as a result, many of them get pretty disciplined about their habits. I can't tell you it's just on sleep, but they get very disciplined about their time and how they use it. That's great. That's great to hear. Ray, you're on mute. Uh, one of the components of being a CEO is the uh, the need to actually work for your bosses, which are actually the board, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people were like, hey, I'm the CEO, I'm in charge. And then, oh, wait, you're not. <laughs> the board's in charge, <laughs> right? What's that relationship like for these top CEOs? Like, what do they do? How do they manage their boards effectively, get ahead of the issues, right? I mean, 
Uh, I mean, you saw recently a large social media company had an activist investor who was actually very popular on Twitter jump in. I mean, like, you know, and saying, hey, your board is worthless, right? I mean, it, it's crazy out there and, and anything can happen. And you've got, you know, boards that, you know, might go in a different direction than what the CEO's uh, intention is. Not everybody has dual class AB structures where you have complete voting control, right? You weren't set up that way. And so what is that like, that management of the boardroom? As uh, as A.G. Laffley, the former CEO of Procter uh, <laughs> Gamble, once said to uh, Brad Smith, that uh, the former CEO of Intuit, told me this, said uh, A.G. A.G. Laffley once said to me, "Young man, you don't manage the board; the board manages you." So let's talk about how you're going to be effective with the board. And I learned a lot from Brad uh, in writing this book about Brad is amazing. Me, yeah, he's an amazing leader. Uh, I learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, what it means to really uh, work with the board and the mindset with the board, right? Most, again, many CEOs that I've known over the years, they do think about managing their board. They do think about how can I just give them enough information, keep them at an arm's length, get whatever we need to get done from a governance and control point of view, and then let me get back to work. The mindset, yeah, the mindset here very much by these great CEOs is how do I help the directors help the business, right? So it often starts with them working with the chairman or the chairwoman, the lead director on the whole notion of what's the right composition for the board of the future, right? Not for what we needed in the past, but what we're going to need in the future. Because if you get the right skills on there, technology, AI, marketing, governance, whatever it might be, that's critical because if you don't have the right folks on, you know, you're not going to get them to help, help the company. And then the second thing that becomes important beyond the composition is what a number of the CEOs we interviewed talked about is radical transparency. Let's be, let's be really open open with them. Ed Breen, Tyco, now DuPont, Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase, Ivan Menezes at Diageo talked about this in different ways. They, Ivan Diageo has this approach with boards, you know, executive session. He does a seven plus seven. Here are the seven things I'm really happy about since we last met. Here are the seven things that are keeping me awake. And he really kind of, you know, creates that radical transparency and that openness. And then you're in a position to really get the board not to be questioning you all the time, but rather mm -hmm. helping you with great advice, great perspectives, great views. And indeed, in certain instances, even helping on certain issues. So they really work, they really work their board well. And as, as Ajay Banga of MasterCard said to me, you know what? They're actually relatively cheap too, so they're the cheapest consultants you're ever going to get too. Much, much cheaper than McKinsey and Company. He, he assured me. Uh, Vic, my my last question: If there was a word cloud that described the 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 strength and the characteristics of these sixty-seven extraordinary CEOs that you interviewed, what would be the word that would be the biggest in the word cloud? Would it be trust? Empathy, work ethics, um, self-awareness, passion. What, what's is there a word that really is common in the DNA of all these sixty-seven extraordinary leaders? Well, maybe not common in all sixty-seven, but I say probably true for fifty out of the sixty-seven. Wow. And the word for me would be servant leadership, wow. uh, because wow. what stood out for me was. You know, if you go back to the, def, the the elements of servant leadership, a lot of those things stood out for me. Uh, by and large, they were great listeners. They wanted to work through others and have others succeed. The job was not about them. It was about the institution. Wow. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, they really, 
anchored in on being authentic, on being humble, and really wanting to, the company to be great and the institution to be great, not themselves to be great. So servant leadership would be my, if I could say two words that would pop from the workout, but they're linked, they're linked. That would be it for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. This has been wonderful. The time has been so short, but so impactful. You could have spent two hours on this topic, Ray, two hours. Go I ahead, know. I, well, I'd be happy Vip, to come back. <laughs> Thank, Vip you. Mahotra, Thank you. We are so happy to have you, author of CEO Excellence and senior partner at McKinsey & Co. More importantly, you can follow him at McKinsey. And of course, you'll see him in the newsletters and of course, some of the features that are happening out. But get the book, CEO Excellence. Read it. Learn from the 67 CEOs uh, that made the cut. And more importantly, learn the lessons now. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Happy Earth Day. Thank you, sir. Wow. I hope he stays with us in the green room. Catch up with uh, John Miller. We'll see what happens. But what a show. Oh, my God. Time has flown. Okay, Ray. Let's do this. Uh, no. Do a, do a recap. So Sanjay in the future of work. John about data visualization, demarcation of data so everyone can be more informed. And, of course, CEO excellence, which I believe these principles that Vic shared with us could be at every level in the organization. You are the CEO of your own life, your own career, your own contribution to society. So I just think that all of this incredible wisdom that these 67 CEOs shared in the book can be something that we can learn from and apply ourselves. Your, your closing thoughts on the show. Yeah, no, we have three incredible leaders here today. And, um, you know, we, we got to see the perspectives of what's changing in the future of the organization right? Uh, how we're structured, uh, the leadership styles that are going to be important, how we use data and information as uh, John was talking about, uh, what that workplace of the future could actually do as an impact. Uh, and more importantly, the, the traits that make CEOs successful, right? Uh, making CEOs successful, making organizations successful, you know, in that space. Uh, when we met great refactoring at the beginning of that conversation, I mean, this is one element of that, really how organizations are transforming themselves and how their leaders are transforming their organizations. And that interchange is going to continue um, as we build out towards the end of the decade. Organizations are going to look so different than they did at the end of the decade uh, than they did at the beginning of this decade. And, and that's what's going to be exciting. Maybe we go to work because there was an event. It's a chance to collaborate, right? We only go into work when something is important. We save our productive time to do something different, right? Maybe we use data and analytics in a way that actually augments our ability to make decisions much more quickly. And we automate all the mundane stuff so that that becomes a different skill set. And maybe we take those soft skills and we actually build those so that we humanize that digital world in a much more meaningful and impactful way. So there you go. Back to you, Val. Amazing, amazing recap. That was uh, episode 276. Next week, uh, you know, buckle oh, up wow. your seatbelt and get your popcorn ready for next week. Episode 277, we're going to cross 850 interviews since the inception of our show six years ago. We have Kim Salem-Jackson, Executive Vice President, Chief Marketing Officer of Akamai. Kim will be joined with Kate uh, Proti, SVP and CIO of Akamai. So we have a CMO, CIO power couple talking about how you drive growth in a technology company. We have Sandy Carter, Senior Vice President and Channel Chief at Unstoppable Ooh. Domains uh, from AWS, incredible executive now in the world of Web3, NFTs, and Metaverse. And we have Mark Soror, author of Synergy Solutions and Deloitte US lead for M&A and restructuring. So four incredible 
executives and thought leaders for episode 277. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching and we'll see you next week. Bye everyone. Take care.